Uh, please turn in your Bibles, uh, the Pew Bibles, on page 774. Uh, we're studying Jonah, and our section today is going to be all of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord." And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of God. So in our section of Jonah, chapter 2 precedes uh, the famous story of Jonah being swallowed by the fish. And that's in chapter 1, verse 17, which Bradley preached on last week. The famous story of Jonah being swallowed by the fish for three days and three nights. So what did Jonah do for three days and three nights? Well, we don't know what his physical conditions were, and we don't know how he survived, uh, but we do know that he prayed. And we have his prayer here in chapter 2. And today I'm going to talk about three things from this prayer. So I'm going to talk about Jonah and judgment and Sheol. I'm going to talk about uh, Jonah in God's presence. And then we'll conclude by looking at Jonah in gratitude. So first, Jonah in judgment and Sheol. One of the first things you notice in this passage is all of the water imagery. And you might recall that prior to Jonah being swallowed by the fish, uh, he had actually told the sailors on the ship to pick him up and hurl him into the sea. Uh, So he immediately experiences a drowning sensation. We never want to stereotype. But a prophet from 8th century B.C., Gath Heifer, Israel, is probably not the best swimmer in the world. And by his own account, Jonah sinks into the depths like a rock. And he does experience this drowning sensation. If you read verses 3 through 6 closely, you can almost feel the waves crashing over Jonah as he sunk below the surface. And he actually mentions water uh, several times. Seven explicit times he says the deep, The seas, the flood, waves, billows, waters. And then he mentions the deep again. And we might think, well, of course Jonah is going to mention water. He was drowning. He was in the sea. He was going down. But this isn't a report of what happened to Jonah. It's a song. It's a song. It's an instrument of worship. And we'll see later on it probably was meant to be used as a song of thanksgiving. So why all the mentions of water? Well, our first clue comes to us in Jonah uh, chapter 2, verse 3. And I'll read it again. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Jonah recognizes that God is the one who is responsible for him being in the storm, in the sea, 
not the sailors on the ship. And Bradley and I talked about this text a couple weeks ago, and we were going over it, and he pointed out that in the Old Testament, if someone was cast into water, it was a sign that they were under God's judgment. Now, there's an obvious reason Jonah finds himself under God's judgment, and then there's a greater biblical reason that we'll see in a moment. But the obvious reason is that Jonah has blatantly disobeyed the word of God. God called him to go and prophesy against the great city of Nineveh, and he went to Tarshish, the opposite side of the known world. When we disobey God, we can also be liable to his judgment. The Bible's pretty clear about that. Uh, there's, all time, there's times in our life where we can all point to these instances where we have done the wrong thing, we've disobeyed God, we've sinned, and as a result, we face correction. So God is angry with Jonah because he's disobeyed him. He sends a storm for his correction. That's the obvious reason that Jonah finds himself in judgment. But there's a greater biblical reason for all of this water imagery. And to know this, we'll have to uh, look at Jonah's background. Jonah was a prophet from Israel. And as a good little Jewish boy growing up in Israel, Jonah was taught that there was one event that dwarfed all others in significance in his nation's history. And that was the Exodus. That's when God freed the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, when he executed the ten plagues, including the Passover, and then culminating in him parting the Red Sea. Now, I grew up in children's church, where a lot of our children are right now. And Jesus, Jesus was the answer to just about every question they asked. I imagine... I don't have any facts on this, that in Jonah's Sabbath school growing up, the Exodus was just about the answer to every question. It's that important in Israel's history. And you might remember that in the climax of the story of Exodus, uh, the people of Israel are fleeing Pharaoh's army. The Egyptians are in pursuit of them, and they come upon the sea. So with Pharaoh behind them and the sea in front of them, they think they're doomed, they're dead, This is the end. But God miraculously parts the Red Sea and the people walk on the bottom of the sea as if it's a trail of dry ground. But not only that, when the Egyptians follow them into the dry ground, God collapses the water over them and sends the waves and a lot of the army drowns. So at that point in history, God's wrath was fixed on Egypt and he sends them into watery judgment. He sends the waves and the deep on top of them. Now, the people of Israel are, they go into extreme celebration uh, because they've been freed from their oppressors. The Egyptians did unspeakable cruelties to them in their time in slavery. And so they celebrate, they rejoice, and they write a song called the Song of Moses. And I think Jonah would have been pretty familiar with this song. It's located in Exodus 15. And please listen to a couple lines from it. Pharaoh's chariots and his host God cast into the sea. Pharaoh's chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them and they went down into the depths like a stone. Does this sound familiar? This is exactly the same type of language that Jonah is using to describe his judgment. Jonah is looking at Exodus, the story of his people, and identifying himself not with Israel, but with the Egyptians. He is 
saying, I am receiving the same punishment as an enemy of God's people. Now, this realization that he's being counted among the enemy of God's people causes his soul to sink even lower than his body. Okay, So if you were wondering what Sheol meant in verse 2, and I'll read it again, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol in Jonah's time in the ancient world was the underworld. You know, in Greek, it's this idea of Hades, this place of no return, this place without God's presence. It's a place of devastation. And that's where Jonah thinks he is because he's been cast into the sea. And there's a little bit of exposure we can kind of see here. Jonah's life is being exposed, and he's fearful for his whole life. Uh, Being in Sheol can affect your place in eternity. He reinforces this idea in verse 4. He says, I am driven away from your sight. And in verse 6, he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So mythology of the day said that Sheol had these bars over it that made it an impenetrable prison from which there is no escape. So Jonah is saying, I'm lost, I'm locked in Sheol. He's out of God's favor, out of God's presence. The life he knows is over. And for the longest time, it's pretty clear from the text that Jonah has thought he's the good guy. Okay, So there are 14 references to the Old Testament in Jonah 2. I don't have time to point them all out, but Jonah knows his Bible inside and out. He's an Israelite, and not only that, he's the prophet of Israel. The word of God comes directly to him. He has a privilege of conversing with God. One of the themes we've been talking about in our study of Jonah is presuming on God's grace. And it would appear here that Jonah is presuming on God's grace. He's probably assumed, because of who he is, a prophet, that God likes him more than the average person. He's probably assumed, because he's a member of the nation of Israel, that he has a special privilege in his relationship with God. But then, God asked him to do a hard thing. God asked him to go and preach against the great city of Nineveh, and it turns out that Jonah realizes that he has sin in his heart, and that leads him on this trajectory of saying, not only am I in a storm, but I'm in Sheol. So at this point, let me ask a couple questions. Are we, as Christians here, presuming on God's grace? Are we assuming just because of who we are or where we come from, outside of our relationship with God, that we're good people. Forgiveness is important, and God is gracious, and he gives it. Repentance is crucial to the Christian life. But it's possible to presume on God's grace. It's possible to render it meaningless in our life. Because receiving God's grace involves giving him autonomy over our life. Are we willing to go to Nineveh if God asks us to? Um, One biblical scholar uh, named Rosemary Nixon uh, wrote a book about Jonah, and she suggests that Jonah was in Sheol, this underworld-type place, way before he was cast into the sea. And She had this great line. She said, Jonah's determination to run from the presence of the Lord was a flight to death. So only in the water and in the belly of Sheol does Jonah really understand the fragility of his life. 
Uh, it's almost as if being in Sheol in the water is a point of clarity for him where he recognizes a sin in his heart. And she goes on to talk about we should be more concerned if we are like Jonah asleep in the ship, unaware of the storm around us and unaware that we're about to be in Sheol because sin has crept into our hearts. Now, how do we prevent sin from creeping into our hearts? How do we prevent falling asleep in the ship in the storm? I would suggest uh, getting a sheet of paper and kind of writing some of the major themes of your life and then mapping them onto a book of the Bible that addresses those themes. So if you struggle with mistrusting God, uh, you could choose a book like Exodus, and you could read it and see all the times God's people did not trust him. And then when you get done with Exodus, turn it back over to page one and read back through, this time highlighting all the ways in which God provided for the very people that were mistrusting him. If you struggle with gratitude, you can pick a book like Philippians, and you can highlight all the ways Paul is thankful for God's provision, even though he's writing that letter from a jail cell. He's in prison. And then when you're done with Philippians, you can go back through and you can uh, highlight all the ways in which Jesus is, uh, is, is kind of set as this example in Philippians as a servant who lived in perpetual thanksgiving. And once you do those things, you can ask God, I want to live a life of gratitude. I want to be like Jesus Christ. I want uh, to be grateful even in the midst of my suffering. And these, so these reading of themes in Scripture is very important. Responding to God in prayer is, is one of the ways we can keep sin from creeping into our hearts. Now, in terms of Sheol, we realize that Jonah doesn't actually go to Sheol. Uh, he actually enters God's presence. And so that's our second point, Jonah in God's presence. So how do we know God is present with Jonah? He prays. Jonah enters into God's presence through prayer. He was drowning. He thought he was in Sheol. And yet he writes chapter 2. We have his prayer. When your heart is suffering, pray. When you feel like you're in Sheol, pray. When you realize that without God's grace, you would be nothing more than an Egyptian soldier running after the Israelites into the Red Sea, pray. Enter into God's presence. Jonah, counted as an enemy of God, is invited there. Certainly you can be as well. Bradley pointed out that verse 6 is really the turning point of this section of chapter 2. So please, uh, please read it with me. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now the pit is another Old Testament word for Sheol. So he's reinforcing this idea that he thought he was heading to hell, but God has brought him up. Jonah has been an Israelite his entire life, but this is probably the first time he's understood what it means to call God a Savior and a Deliverer. This is the first time he's understood what it means that salvation belongs to the Lord. And I hope you get those points of clarity in your own Christian life, where you say, 
That's what it means uh, to call God a Savior. He will save you. Jonah concludes this psalm by stating salvation belongs to the Lord. And when God saves us or anyone, it's important to remember that it's 100% of God's doing. So there's an equation for this, okay? The salvific work of God plus a sinner dead in his or her sin equals new life. Salvation is 100% of God's doing. There's a kneeler down by your feet, okay? It is an inanimate object. It is a cushion on a piece of wood. It has no life in it whatsoever. Before God's presence enters your heart, before God enters your life, we are as dead and lifeless and inanimate as that kneeler. That should remind us next time we go to confession that even confession can be this act of thanksgiving because God's presence has allowed me to see the sin that's in my heart. His grace has to come to us first. So that's what salvation from the Lord can mean for us, even in confession. Now, of course, there's a practical reason for Jonah's salvation. Jonah was not called to drown at sea. He was called to prophesy against the great city of Nineveh. God always completes the work he has started in us. Through the storm, though he thought he was in Sheol, God's plan for Jonah's life, God's mission that he's assigned him to, is not thwarted. Jonah's disobedience and the fact that Jonah's under judgment from God does not free him from his mission. But there's also a spiritual reality that Jonah, I believe, is alluding to in this passage that has massive implications for everyone in this room. And I believe anticipates a God who will come to us and be present with us as a human being. And again, we have to know a little bit about the Exodus uh, to see this illusion. Ever since the people of Israel received their salvation from God, they always had this physical manifestation with them of God's presence. So when God sends them on their way to Mount Sinai and into the wilderness, they were always able to point and see God's presence. At first, it was a cloud by day and a fire by night. Then they built the tabernacle, followed by the temple, which Jonah mentions twice, the temple. The temple was a physical manifestation of God's presence, where geographically, in Jerusalem, the entire nation of Israel could say, there is our God, he is present with us. There was even a most holy place in the temple where God's presence was supposed to especially dwell. And once a year, the high priest would go and confess his sins and the sins of the people to God on Yom Kippur, which our Jewish friends just actually celebrated this past uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. But no surprise, because we know how sinful we can be, Israel was also sinful. They presumed on God's presence, just like Jonah has presumed on God's grace. Almost immediately, they turn to idolatry. They start to disobey God as it pleased them. And they sinfully mistook his presence, which was based on mercy, with an endorsement of any behavior they decided to do. And so they started more and more to live in sin. Now, we just explored that Sheol, that Jonah mentions, being in the belly of the Sheol, and the pit, which he says God brought him out from, is the underworld, okay? So 
we would think that if Sheol and the underworld are down here, then God in his throne is way up in heaven. We would contrast that. So Sheol and the underworld is as far as you can get from God's presence. Now, Jonah clearly thinks that God's presence is in the temple. It's in the temple, which is way in Jerusalem, uh, 75 miles inland on the coast. And Jonah is out here in the bottom of the sea. So by nature of him being in Sheol and looking to the temple, we would think that Jonah is as far from God as he could possibly get. Yet this entire prayer is Jonah talking directly to God. And we ask, how is that possible? We'll notice that Jonah looks to the temple twice. In verse 4, he says, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And again in verse 7, he says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And at first we think, well, that's nice. Jonah's prayer was transmitted to heaven. Jonah's prayer was transmitted to the temple, into God's throne room. But that's not even close to the reality of God's presence, the, what Jonah is speaking to here and what it means for us. And we know that by looking at Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Who is the first character in the story of Jonah to appear? It actually isn't Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So Jonah was probably written 800 years before the time of Jesus. So 800 years after that sentence is written, John will write his gospel account. John, a disciple of Jesus. And he will introduce us to Jesus, calling him the Word of God. And he says that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, in Jonah 1, when we see the Word of God coming to Jonah, there are huge implications for followers of Jesus. Jonah's prayer anticipates, in my opinion, a God entering our world. Now, why would God do this? God loves us. He is motivated to know us and be present with us by his love. Our Women's Wednesday Night Bible study is actually studying 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're told that the Son of God planned, motivated by his love, planned to be with us from before creation. I think it's really important to, for you to know that Jesus is not plan B. Jesus is not plan B. From the very beginning, from before the foundation of the world, God planned to be with you because he loves you. Jesus anticipates a greater presence than Jonah or us could even imagine. Jesus is going to uh, coordinate a meeting between us and God face to face. Do you think you're in Sheol? Okay? Or is your heart heavy? Are you in storms? Or do you identify with Jonah and think, I've disobeyed God there's nothing left for me to do. Jesus, God himself, came and took your sin, all of it, and he conquered it. Jonah never went to Sheol. Jesus did. In the Apostles' Creed, we say that Jesus descended into hell. 
Well, Jesus descended into hell in the sense that he kicked the gates of hell down and took his church from damnation into life. Now, this world where we're at now doesn't feel like home all the time, okay? It can feel uh, like a rancid and dark place. It can feel like the belly of a fish. It can be this place of exile. But Jonah's prayers ultimately in the grand scheme of the story of the Bible are heard by God because in the person of Jesus, God has come down into the place of exile, into the belly of the ship with us. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior, God has promised to put his spirit, the spirit of Christ, in you. The temple that Jonah longed to see has come to you. The New Testament talks about the body of Christ, the church, and Christians, members of the church, being new temples of God where God's presence rests. So where is God right now? Well, where are you? Where will God be on Monday? Where will you be? That's where God will be. God's presence is with you. Jonah was praying to God and understands his presence a little bit. Jesus has exploded our idea of what it means for God to be present. He revolutionizes this phrase Jonah used, salvation belongs to the Lord. God's presence is permanently with you. That's one of the infinite gifts of Jesus Christ. And when we are in communion with Jesus at all the time, on Sundays, we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper, reminding us of the communion we have in Jesus. And we will be there in just a moment. This is my last point. Uh, So transitioning from God's presence uh, to Jonah in gratitude. So we'll conclude by looking at the end of the psalm, verses 8 and 9. You can read them with me. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's response to God's salvation is a voice of thanksgiving. It is a complete life commitment to God. Now, We live at a time when gratitude and thanksgiving are flippant. We have hashtag blessed. Okay, we we mock this idea of being grateful. And actually, a couple weeks ago, I think in Sunday school, Jeff mentioned gratitude journals. Uh, There's nothing wrong like he was talking about with writing what you're thankful for at the end of the day. But our gratitude is rooted in something. It is given to God, who we believe is a creator and giver and sustainer of all things. We believe God's holding the world right now with his hands, giving us and uh, and sustaining us in all that we have and all that we do. That is a life of gratitude. So what do we make of Jonah's vows when he says, I will vow to you, um, I will fulfill my vows? Well, Jonah has a new understanding of his relationship with God. And when God saves us, we have entered into a new relationship with him. The New Testament calls this new relationship marriage. It says Jesus is the husband and the church is his bride. And when you get married, 
You make vows to your spouse. You promise to never leave them, never forsake them. You give them your whole life. You promise monogamy. You say, I'm only going to share intimacy with you. Uh, You promise to give them your complete love and devotion. These are the kind of vows Jonah is making. This is why he makes them. When you get married, you're completely committed to your spouse. Now, if we're married to God, worshiping vain idols, worshiping something that's not going to save us, something that's not going to bring us into paradise, something that's not going to introduce us to the face of God, is vain. And it's committing adultery, spiritual adultery, with God. We must be committed to a life of gratitude with Him. Now, how do we determine the vain idols in our life? I think it's extremely helpful uh, to think, if my relationship with God were taken away from me, what would I still have going for me? If Jesus were taken away, if I left the church, what would give me meaning in my life? The chances are the answer to that question is a very good, important thing or relationship in your life. But Satan, the devil, our enemy, his very mission is to take you away from God and make that important thing an ultimate uh, God of your life. To turn your heart from God into something that is a vain idol. Another question to ask when you're trying to determine these idols is, how am I most likely to suffer? In my life, where is suffering going to come from most likely? And then ask a follow-up, what do I do to prevent that suffering? How do I try to prevent that suffering without relying on the hope found in Jesus Christ? Now, how do we ensure we do not worship these vain idols. I think the answer is a life committed to God follows the law of Christ. We have to read scripture not for content, but for bread, for food, for water, for air. We need to gasp at it. Even the passages that tell us how to live. Ten Commandments, Sermon on the Mount, Paul's letters are so practical. We have to feed on that. Reading scripture will allow us to prevent ourselves from worshiping these vain vain idols. And finally, we'll end, though, with a word of encouragement. All right? What if you're sitting there and you're saying, I immediately identified vain idols in my life. I immediately identified with Jonah. Being in the storm, being in Sheol, recognizing the sin in my heart. What can I do? Well, I hope you keep coming and studying Jonah because it reveals a God who is merciful and gracious and willing, jumping at us to give us his love. Even to people like Jonah, who was under his judgment, who was completely disobedient with him, the book of Jonah reveals a God who is so merciful and gracious we cannot even comprehend. And so we celebrate this, for salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray.